have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Uh, Luke chapter 3, as we continue making our way through the gospel according to Luke, we'll be in verses 1 through 20 uh, this morning. I wonder if you consider yourself someone who prepares for things well. Prepares for things well. I remember when I was in middle school, uh, there was this, there was going to be, there wasn't, but there was going to be this huge catastrophic event that was going to end civilization as we knew it. This was the first time I ever heard or was exposed to this type of doomsday prepping where people stockpile things, and maybe you're this person, if you are, that's fine, uh, stockpile things in their garage or in rooms in their homes uh, in anticipation for the time in which we will be unable to buy and sell goods for this reason or another. But that catastrophic event, and you may remember it, was known as Y2K. You remember Y2K? Many people prepared for Y2K as the worldwide computer systems were going to crash and presumably end everything. Uh, and we would be left in great disarray. Uh, some of you remember when computers weren't a thing, and you were just fine, right? But we were going to end everything at that point. Our family didn't prepare for that, by the way. I remember on that night, as everything was on the precipice of coming to an end and crashing and burning, I was at a friend's house shooting fireworks for New Year's. Some of you are good at preparing. Many of you are not. I know for vacation, some of you prepare weeks in advance. You've got everything laid out, packed up, all placed neatly in your Ziploc bags that are labeled, and, you know, you OCD people, you do things like that. That's great. Uh, at our house, we run around like a bunch of chickens with our heads cut off. On the morning that we're supposed to leave, we shove everything into suitcases. We leave two hours behind schedule, and then we get there and realize we've forgotten half the stuff we were going to take and showed up with half the stuff we didn't need. Although we did tell ourselves we'd prepare weeks in advance for our vacation. In today's text, we meet a guy who has come to prepare for something. Namely, the arrival of Jesus Christ. We encounter John the Baptist who was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, as the text tells us and as many of us know so well. John the Baptist had the responsibility of preparing people for the coming Messiah by preaching a message of repentance. And John's message of repentance was not necessarily a popular message, one of which continues to lack popularity even today, this idea of repentance. But John's message of repentance, as he prepared the way for the Messiah, John's message of repentance was necessary in order for someone to see Jesus. You see, you, you cannot see Christ. You cannot meet Christ. You cannot know Christ apart from repentance. And as John proclaims, repentance prepares us for the salvation that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, brings. And so as Christians preparing to meet Christ, there are many things that we may say aid us in this pursuit. We would say reading the Bible aids us in this pursuit. Prayer, gathering with God's people, among many other things. But as we think about meeting Christ and preparing to meet Christ, while these other disciplines are certainly good and necessary, they are certainly necessary, 
Repentance may not find its way to the top of our list of things that we need to pack in our suitcases in preparation to meet Christ. You see, we repent in order to receive salvation as we confess our sins, but how many of us have developed the practice of repentance in our daily lives as we walk with Christ? As we will see this morning, repentance is not a one-and-done type of thing when we receive salvation, but it is essential to walking through this Christian life. And as we approach this text this morning, I pray that the Lord would give us a proper understanding of repentance. And not only that we not only practice repentance in our daily lives on a personal level, but that we would bring others alongside of us as we regularly repent and be lifted by the gospel and be lifted by the family of God around us. And so if you are able, would you stand as we read from God's Word in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20. The Word of God reads, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Arturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zebedee, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make, straight, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he, he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Pray with me. Father, give us understanding by your Spirit work in our hearts. 
Give us the boldness of John in our proclamation of the gospel and of repentance to those around us. We thank you for your word. Bless the preaching of your word in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week, although minimal information is given to us by God in his scriptures, we considered Jesus in his early years, specifically at age 12 when his parents left him behind in the temple following the Passover celebration. Now we fast forward quite a few years to get up to Jesus, uh, presumably at age 30 as he is beginning his ministry. And I want to go ahead and jump right into the text here. There are four things that we're going to see about repentance as we walk through this passage. And if repentance is vital in preparing us for the salvation that Jesus brings, then we're going to look at repentance from four different angles this morning from what we see in this passage. And so my first observation, repentance prepares us for salvation. Repentance prepares us for salvation. We see this in verses 1 through 6. Now, in what, what might appear to be a bit strange, Luke begins by recording the names of these officials, both governing and church officials, right from the outset. Church officials, high priests. Uh, in doing so, Luke provides context for the events that are unfolding. And at the beginning of our journey, we remember Luke did a very similar thing. Remember, Luke is very uh, thorough in his account. He has the desire to pass on and rightly record historical facts and have accurate history of what took place during the time of Jesus. However, while Luke does give us the historical context of the day by providing us with these different officials, I think that Luke is doing something more than just providing us with the history surrounding John's ministry in the beginning of Jesus's. I think what Luke wants us to see is what is ultimately significant during this time, not what the world deems as significant. We've seen him do this before as he mentioned various officials, and I think he's doing the same thing here. You see, within a worldly system, we often misunderstand true significance. What is truly significance? It's easy for us to look at powerful people like Luke has named here in this passage. It's easy for us to look at significant events in history, like, like, like for instance, recently the king's coronation, right? Some uh, a giant piece of history that many look at as great moments of significant history. And we can say to ourselves, well, that's extremely significant. That is a monumental moment. That is something big. But what, Luke is, what we see with Luke is not what the world deems to be significant, but what God deems as significant, that of ultimate significance. You see, Luke and John are saying to us in this passage, before you get consumed with what might be happening politi politically, with this high drama politically, there is a message of far greater significance right here that you may not see. You see, Luke says in verses 1 and 2, all of these people, they're powerful people. We see later, they're so powerful that they imprison Luke for speaking out against them. These are powerful people who occupy great positions that, with, that, that come with great pomp and circumstance. And while they occupy seemingly significant roles, Luke is saying to us, let me show you what is truly significant. Let me show you a guy who comes out of the wilderness and pre preaches a message that you do not understand. This is an interesting opening act for us. If Jesus is the headlining artist, then Luke is the opener. He's the one preparing the way. John, I mean John, not Luke, excuse me, John is the lesser known. 
coming to prepare the audience for Jesus who has come. And John comes out of the wilderness. We can imagine what John would look like. Some of you go into the woods and hunt for days at a time. You come out and you look rough, all right? Well, John has been in the wilderness looking a bit crazy, wearing camel's hair, leather belt, eating locusts and honey. Give me a break. No doubt he smells terrible, okay? Probably looks like Bigfoot and smells like Bigfoot. And John opens up for Jesus. The headlining artist, the opening act, opens up for Jesus by calling people to repent. Now, we might think to ourselves, wouldn't it be better to prepare people to meet Jesus with a message a little more loving, a little more gentle maybe? You know, maybe by saying God has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't you want to know it? Not for John. John comes out of the gate proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of the sins in preparation for Jesus, the Messiah. You see, for us, repentance might draw to mind a host of different thoughts, most of which are very uncomfortable if we're honest with ourselves. Repentance may be a concept that we aren't necessarily as familiar with as we might should be. We talk about it in the sense that we must repent and believe in Christ, but beyond that, it's not always a topic of teaching or a conversation that we're normally having with people, and we'll talk about more on that in just a second. At times, if we're honest, at times, we shy away from repentance, especially in a communal setting with other people involved, because it involves openness. It involves vulnerability. It involves admitting and confessing that there is something wrong, that there is something off about me. It suggests that I am responsible for something, and now I have the responsibility to address whatever it is which does not jive with the pridefulness of our own hearts. Now, we're going to get more in-depth into what repentance is in a moment, but right now we're just considering the concept of repentance and why John showed up preaching a message of repentance as he prepares the way for Jesus. You see, the repentance that John proclaims is not some sort of unbearable action that we must undergo, something of which we just have to grin and bear. Repentance is not some sort of terrible medicine that we have to choke down with a spoonful of sugar. Repentance is not this necessary evil that we just have to get over, that we have to navigate or be coerced into. What John actually shows us in church, what we need to understand this morning, is not that repentance is a sour-tasting medicine that we have to swallow and get over quickly, but it's actually a life-giving drink of cold water to a parched soul. If you look at verses 4 through 6, This direct quote from Isaiah chapter 40 to describe John the Baptist and what John is preaching. You might wonder, what is Isaiah talking about here? Valleys filled, mountains and hills made low, crooked made straight, rough places become level. Well, in Isaiah's day, when a king or a dignitary would be visiting a community, the townspeople were expected to build a smooth road through the countryside so that the king could travel and arrive in town. The townspeople would prepare the way, if you would, for the king to travel into town with great celebration, with great adoration of the citizens who'd been awaiting his arrival and preparing the way of the king. So what John is showing us, what Isaiah 
is showing us is that repentance, taking ownership of our sin and forsaking it and stepping out of the darkness and into the light of God's grace, this is the means by which our hearts are prepared to see God Himself in the face of Jesus Christ. Repentance is water to a part soul because it prepares us for Christ. In repentance, the highway is paved for you and I to encounter and be transformed by King Jesus. So at the very least, John is laying out before us, before you see Jesus, you must first see yourself. Which is then accompanied by repentance as you rightly see yourself in light of the holiness of God. Seeing ourselves for who we are. Sinful people who have transgressed against God. Then, church, we are prepared to receive the forgiveness of Christ through repentance. So repentance prepares us to receive Christ and His salvation. We consider repentance as it prepares us, but let's continue on to see kind of the nuts and bolts of what repentance actually is. It's a term, again, that some of us may be familiar with, that you've heard many times within the church, but it may be something on which you lack clarity. John's going to help us. Second observation. Repentance does not presume salvation. Repentance does not presume salvation. Look at verses 7 through 10. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers... Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The crowds asked him, What then shall we do? You might be thinking. Okay, I could, get, I could go with this opening act of John talking about repentance. may not be the message that I would have chosen right out the gate, but to each his own. But now you start to hear what John says. And get this, he doesn't sit down with his audience and he doesn't say to them, hey guys, I need to talk to you about a tough subject. Now what does he do? He begins by calling them a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. You're a bunch of snakes. You're living a lie. He's addressing his Jewish audience who says, who he says are presuming upon God's grace because of their heritage, because of their lineage, as ones who have come from Abraham. And he's looking at them and he's saying, I suspect many of you are trusting in your Jewish heritage as a means of earning or achieving or experiencing the grace of God. And as we read this, our responsibility, hear this and get this, we need, to, we need to catch this very clearly. Our responsibility is not to look at these who are Jewish in John's day and think to ourselves, well, I'd never do such a thing. No, our responsibility is to look at ourselves and wonder where we might presume upon God's grace in our own life. Do you assume things are level between you and God because you were baptized or confirmed as a child? Maybe you think you're good with God because you give financially to the work of the church and you assume, well, I'm okay, all seems right in my life. 
Do you assume that you're spiritually all set because one time you made a decision to walk an aisle or pray a prayer at an evangelistic event and you seem to do something that others say makes you a Christian? Do you believe all is spiritually well with you because you can intellectually ascend to solid theology and doctrine? You would say, I, have, I know the Christian faith. I read my Bible often. I have a shelf of theology books that I've read a number of times. I can articulate the doctrines of grace. I can even see the errors in other uh, religious circles and how they departed from the faith. Surely, surely, because of all of these things, God and I are all right. But church, the warning for us here, the warning, it's a warning here for us, whereas we can be so right in our theology, but so wrong in our hearts. Here's what I mean. We can drive to church on Sunday morning. Some of us drive by multiple churches on the way here. We can arrive and take a seat. We can sing songs, sit under the preaching of the Word, be fascinated by the Bible, and we can totally miss the boat. This is what John is addressing. The Jews knew their Bibles, but they didn't know the God of the Bible. Why? Because they did not know their own hearts that needed to repent. We need to be careful when we consider ourselves, and even consider the life of the church, that we do not think that just because we're sitting at the table, just because we're gathered with a people that we're eating the same meal of God's grace and, truths of, uh, grace and the truths of the gospel as those that are sitting next to us. This is what John is getting at when he's calling and warning his audience. People who profess to be servants of Yahweh, who think they're eating the feast of God's provision, yet although they are at the table, they're eating from another menu, and they think to themselves, think that they are entitled to God's mercy. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here and you go, that's me. And if that's you today, the most important thing that you can do this morning is to turn from your sin, truly repent, don't place your faith in your works. Don't place your faith in your baptism. Don't place your faith in your confirmation. Don't place your faith in a prayer or anything else. Place your faith in the living Jesus Christ. And receive God's grace. Receive Christ as true Savior and Lord. If this is you, find me following the service. We need to talk about this. You need to receive the mercy and grace and experience of God's forgiveness through Christ, not because of your heritage or some sort of box that you checked at one point in your life, but because you know Christ personally as Lord and Savior. Presumptuousness poisons the soul. Presumptuousness takes the heart of a Christian from Lord have mercy on me a sinner to Lord it's about time you got here, I've been waiting long enough. May we all consider our hearts May they not be presumptuous about salvation. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We need, to we need not presume upon our salvation, but we need to revel in the fact that God would save a people such as us that are prone to be presumptuous and offer forgiveness. Third observation. Repentance produces changed lives. Get verse 8 and then 11 through 14. Verse 8, he says, Bear fruits in keeping with Repentance. Verse 11, he answered them. They asked, what then shall I do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. 
Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. This is where many go wrong when they presume upon their salvation. You see, true repentance produces changed lives. It's the basic understanding of repentance. You're going one way and you turn and go the other. True repentance produces changed lives. While many in the Bible Belt who've been a part of the evangelistic culture may pray this prayer, may be baptized, true repentance and true salvation produces a changed life that aligns with God's Word. And listen to me, you hear me say that all the time, and you're like, man, you're getting on this again? Getting on this kick again? But guys, this is what I encounter every single day. People living like the world, but claiming Christ because they said this prayer and were baptized. You encounter it every day, we all encounter it every day. There are great privileges and graces from God in being born into this part of the country that has given us great freedoms in our access to Scripture, our ability to gather, and to a degree, lack of, uh, not persecution necessarily, but pushback for what we do. But in this part of the country, history shows us there's been a great evangelistic push such as this that has caused many converts and disciples of Jesus. Do not hear me wrong. But it has also duped so many people into false confessions of Christ that are going to stand before God, like Matthew 7 says, and they're going to say, well, Lord, I did this, 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 this in your name, and Jesus is going to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Because they're pointing to one act, one action. That's why we say this time and again, because it's real, and it's prevalent in our own community, in our own part of the country. But I think when we think about repentance, as it changes us, it transforms our hearts. There are three, I think, Repentance is threefold. Let's put it that way. Conviction, confession, and correction. Sometimes when we think about repentance, we think it is the feeling of conviction in the heart where we have done wrong. We've sinned against another person. It's our sinful attitude in an interaction with someone or our conduct is against them. Or maybe we think of it in terms of sin against God. I've sinned against God in my unbelief, and my lack of faith, and my trust in Him. And these things are true. Repentance is those things. It certainly is. But repentance does not involve conviction and conviction only. It also involves confession. It is confessing your sin to God, crying out to God, I have sinned against you. First and foremost, sin is against a holy God before it's a sin against someone else. But not only is it confession to God, repentance is bringing it to light with other brothers and sisters in the faith and admitting to them, I'm struggling with this sin. I'm struggling in this way. I'm sinning against God in this way. I'm struggling with greed. I'm struggling with envy. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with pride. Yet it goes further. Conviction, confession, it goes further than that. If we look at this text, it's not just confession in the sense of confessing it verbally and acknowledging it. To a degree, that's one of the easiest things you can do. You can go talk to a brother or sister that you trust and confide in, and you can confess these things, and then all of a sudden you go, wow, I feel better just talking it out. We all feel better talking things out. And so when it comes to repentance, we can confess these things and go, well, I feel better, but it's not just verbal confession. It is confession with the aim of pursuing correction. 
Its aim, repentance's aim, is transformation. It's an aim towards hearts that are seeing the sin that is brought about through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, a means of grace to us, and confessing it and asking others to walk alongside of you as you pursue correction. Not that we won't come back around time after time after time saying we're still struggling with the same thing or we did this again, that happens. But it is confession that pursues correction and transformation as our sin is brought to light and as God changes us. Repentance is the means by which we walk into the light as the light exposes our sins and the darkness of our hearts and then we are able to see Christ. This is what John is preparing his audience for. He is preparing them so that they might see Christ and not be squelched because their imperfections have been brought to light. He's preparing them so that although their sins have been brought to light, they might be met with the warm embrace of Jesus who is yet to come. Yet the problem is they don't see it. You see, in our human life, we walk around with this mindset that we're just free to set the course of our own lives. We have this freedom to do as we please, freedom to go about our business and do things the way we want to do things with little, if any, regard for God. And in our freedom, when we mess up, when we stumble, when we fall, in our hard-heartedness, in our stubbornness, we look at that fault of ours that is brought to light and we chalk it up and go, well, nobody's perfect. Or I'm not, I'm not, at least I'm not out doing this and this like this guy. But this is not the way for the Christian. You see, repentance is laying your life on the line and allowing God to do heart surgery on you. It's having the Lord replace the heart that wants you to proclaim your own freedom, the heart that wants you to hide in the shadows, and stepping out into the light to trust God who will make you a new creation as you receive forgiveness, the forgiveness of your sins. There is action to repentance. Not for action's sake, but as an evidence of transformation. John was not opposed to those who came to him as he preached repentance because he didn't like them. He is opposed to them because they had seen, he had seen no transformation in them, although they presumed upon salvation. They're lining up to be baptized as if it's one more religious act to do so that they could have that stamp on their loyalty card, hoping that when they get to the gates of heaven, they'll have enough stamps to show so they can get in. John says, no, it's not about that. It's about your heart. Has it been stamped new by the grace of God? This is what John is getting at. And if you look at verses 8, the first part, and then 10, 11 through 14, 10 through 14, what then shall we do, the people ask? It's a great question. He doesn't say, come to be baptized for the sake of baptism. He says, give somebody your tunic. If someone's hungry, give them your food. Give them your food. You see, there is the nature of correcting, repentance being demonstrated through correction, through action. John answers the same way to tax collectors. Tax collectors were notorious for extorting money from people, taking more than what was owed to the government so they could put some in their pockets. 
John says, do what you're supposed to do. Don't take advantage of people. To the soldiers, the message is the same. Don't extort money. Be content with your wages. And so John gives three specific examples of how repentance involves correction. Share with those in need. Do not steal and do not take advantage of others. What then shall we do? Well, John didn't say, go ask Herod for a redistribution program. Or a welfare state whereby granting relief from poverty would be forced on the people. The message of the gospel is voluntary compassion. Giving to those in need. Not relying on someone else. If you're born again, you can't see somebody naked and not give them something to clothe them. If you see somebody hungry, you give them food. The fruit of conversion is a heart that loves people. Our neighbors whether they're believers or unbelievers. As one author wrote, if someone has AIDS, we don't ask him how he got it. If he's in the gutter, we don't ask him how he got there. We get him out of there. That's what converted people do. They show compassion. They don't tell someone to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. We consider how can we lift them up. Further, John shows us that we might be tempted to think that repentance is only done at the outset of the Christian life, like it's the doorway into Christianity. We confess that we are sinners, that we need grace, and that we need salvation through Jesus dying in our place on the cross. And all of this is true. We need all of those things, but it doesn't stop there. John demonstrates for us that repentance is not just the door by which we enter the Christian life. It is the shoes by which we walk the whole of the Christian life. Repentance is the pattern of the Christian life. The great reformer Martin Luther constructed his famous 95 Theses that he nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. Number one of his 95 Theses as he sought to reform the Roman Catholic Church and return them to Scripture's teaching regarding God's grace and salvation. The first thing that Luther says in his, that he writes in his 95 Theses When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life of believers, repentance. For Christians, the danger for us is to kind of shrink back from repentance. But Christian, listen here, repentance must be a regular mark of our lives. Now we aren't talking about blanket confessions. Well, I'm just not perfect, but I'm trying to do my best. We're talking about specificity. Do you repent in generalities? God, I've done wrong today. Or do you repent with specificity? Do you invite the Spirit of God and the people of God, the church family, do you invite them to be the means by which God graciously reveals sin to you that you need to confess and pursue correction? Take stock of your life as you consider this point. If your life is deficient of repentance, it is deficient of genuine faith. If repentance is not a part of your life, then it reveals that your faith is not in Christ's righteousness, but it's in your righteousness. If repentance is not a hallmark of each of our lives, then we are actually revealing that at the root of our heart, our hope does not rest in Christ's righteousness, it rests in our own. Which is not. John gives his audience specific examples of what repentance looks like because he knows that repentance is done with specificity. Not in generalities. 
Church, let us have a practice, a pattern, a commitment with one another that we're going to welcome others into our lives within our church family, that we're going to confess our sins to one another, and we're going to bind one another up, and we're going to pray with one another, we're going to hold one another accountable in the grace of God. And as we do, a week later, the one that was confessing the sin to one will be the one holding the other up, because the roles will then be reversed. Husbands, fathers, let's commit that we will be the chief repenters in our households and in our marriages. Because we want ourselves, our families, our loved ones, and our church to see Jesus who can only be seen clearly through the eyes of repentance. Fourth observation. Repentance trusts the promises of Jesus. Keep in mind, John is preparing his listeners and preparing us to see Jesus. Yet as he's talking about this, some are wondering, who is the Christ? Is John the Christ? And John's response to this is seen in verse 16. Look what John says. He says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John knew that he was preaching a message that demanded a response. But Jesus would come and transform via the Holy Spirit of God, taking hold of and transforming the lives of the repentant. And this echoes the passage of Isaiah. Now John wants his audience to know that he is buckling them in for this journey. He is setting up the wood, but God Himself must send the fire. Only Jesus can ignite our hearts. Only God can take hearts from repentance to seeing and trusting in the Savior. The eyes turn from looking down at one's sins, one's shames, one's hurts, and then their eyes are lifted that they may see Christ. This is why this message is of paramount importance. We don't see John much else in the Gospel of Luke. He's kind of a one-hit wonder. But this is a great hit. He wants his audience to see Jesus in the fullness of His beauty. He doesn't want them to just agree with Jesus. He wants them to adore Jesus for who He is. The Son of the living God, the Messiah, the giver of true joy and true life. And we will only adore Jesus by first seeing our great need for Jesus. And if we want to see a great work of God in our church and in our lives, we must be a church where repentance is at the forefront of our hearts so that we can see Jesus rightly where self-justification is abandoned and left behind so that we walk solely by the grace of God. And John helps us to see that not only has Jesus come, but that Jesus will indeed come again. This alarming picture of verse 17 shows us the future coming of Christ. And what John is showing us is that one day Jesus will return like a farmer harvesting crops. He'll bring in all that is being harvested, the wheat, and He will bring the wheat into the barn, but the chaff will be burned eternally. John is saying that all who have the appearance of some sort of religiosity or looking as if they have some sort of appreciation for and worship of God revealed in God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and yet they're actually not repentant, they will be thrown into the unquenchable fire. Now there's two comforts I take from this passage. First, I'm comforted because as I consider how we're going to encounter Jesus in the weeks ahead as we continue making our way through the gospel according to Luke. I know 
that my sin can obstruct my view of Jesus as I read the scriptures. And I need something that will enable me to cast off those sins and receive eyes to see and a heart to receive and encounter Jesus as God has revealed Him in the Scriptures. Repentance is that very thing. Through repentance, I leave those sins in the hands of God because they're too corrosive. They're too destructive for me to hold in my own hands. And as I do, I receive spiritual eyes to see and a spiritually alive heart to receive. Secondly, as we consider trusting the promises of Jesus, the text indicates that repentance is a difficult message to swallow. We see that in verses 18 through 20. John's preaching out against Herod, and Herod's not real happy about it and has him locked up. John experiences the difficulty of this message. It's hard for those who are unrepentant, who do not want their sins to be brought to light, who want to be the captain of their own soul and destiny. This message of repentance and following Christ is foreign and harmful to their eyes. Yet, I'm comforted. Because we live in a day where opposition to Christ runs quite rampant. You're far more likely to be called a bigot and that your faith is out of step with the current culture than for someone to come up to you on the side of the road and ask you how to be saved. But what you see, what we see in John, is that in the face of great rejection, the power of God and the gospel always goes forth, flourishes in many occasions. Our tendency is to want to engage with unbelievers and to tell them that God loves them and has a wonderful plan for their lives, which indeed is true. But we often shy away from repentance because it isn't popular, because it stings. This is also true. But what John shows us is that God's wonderful plan for our life is actually to surrender control of our life in repentance and to receive the life that is offered to us in Christ. And what this does is it underscores the need for us, church family, for us to pray together as a church, praying that God would give new birth, the power to give power to our evangelism, and then to bring the spiritually blind in our lives to repentance. You know how the grace and power of God begins to work in a church. The church starts to take seriously the responsibility to be a people of repentance. Not because we want to afflict ourselves with agony, but so that we can see the dead destruction of our own sins and taste anew the goodness of Jesus in having our sins taken from us on the cross. Repentance is vital to preparing us for the salvation that Christ brings. Maybe today you have some sins you need to specifically repent of. Call out to God in repentance this morning. Maybe you need to find a brother or sister in Christ that can be an accountability partner that you can confess your sins to, not for the sake of confession only, but in order to pursue correction. Someone who will spur you on to stay in the fight and pursue a life of holiness. Locate that person. They're here and they're godly. Maybe today you need to repent for the first time and believe upon Jesus as Lord and not presume upon your salvation any longer.
I invite you to do that as well. I invite all of you to respond as the Spirit leads. Would you pray with me?